Radical Personal Finance, Episode 37. Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast for today, Thursday, August 7, 2014. Thank you for being here. Excited to bring you today's show is going to be an interview with Trevor, who writes a personal finance blog, among other projects, at NDPF.com. Got him waiting on the line. Stay with us. So one of the things that I'm most interested in when it comes to personal finance, in case you haven't figured it out with the uh, the show topics yet, is I'm very much interested in getting out of the mainstream of personal finance. Uh, and my reason for that is because I think many of the mainstream topics of personal finance just simply don't work. <laughs> and it seems like a lot of the advice that's given in the personal finance world makes the author of the book wealthy, but it certainly doesn't seem to do much for the uh, the adherence to the author's philosophies in many ways. And so I love off-topic, off-non-mainstream um, personal finance topics, and that was actually how I found the uh, how I found today's guest. Today's guest, his name is Trevor, and he commented on the show. Uh, he's commented on the show a couple of times, and then based upon that comment, I went and checked out some of his websites and realized that we probably had a lot in common. And so today, I'm looking forward to talking to him, and we're going to talk about some of the ideas that we have found each of us individually has found most helpful with personal finance. and And I hope you enjoy. So, Trevor, with that, welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. I appreciate your being here. Well, hi, Joshua. It's uh, great to be here. I, I look forward to the discussion that we're going to have today. <laughs> you know, I think, I think I'm hoping uh, we're going to try something new. Usually uh, when I do an interview, I'm prone to an overly uh, – I'm prone to over researching things. So if I, you know, usually I'll read 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 every book someone's written or or read everything that that someone's done. And a lot of times I've found that when I do that, then I'm kind of leading the conversation. And and sometimes it doesn't gonna doesn't go in in the most interesting ways. It goes in the ways that I'm trying to guide it. So uh, so I don't know very much about you. I know a couple of things. So today I'm, I'd like to just get to know you and and pretend that we're sitting in a coffee shop somewhere. A couple of uh, people interested in offbeat topics of personal finance, and let's approach it that way and see if we can learn something together, uh, if that's okay with you. Hey, that sounds great, uh, <laughs> Joshua. You'll be doing it live today. <laughs> Perfect. It'll be fun. <laughs> so I'd be curious, would you be willing just to share just a little bit of your story, who you are, what you do, uh, in order to introduce yourself to me and also to the audience? Yep, I'm Trevor. Uh, the last name's Van Hemert. I noticed that you didn't try to um, navigate that <laughs> You got that one, huh? Pronunciation. <laughs> Um, and I don't know, I don't think of myself as anything really special. I just sort of, uh, go where the winds go in a way. Um, I hop from one thing to another because I get bored very quickly. Um, I started in, I guess web design was really how I, I started off with my, uh, skill development back in 2004 when I was 16, we built our first website, my brother and I. And um, that sort of led one thing to another. I ended up getting into media, went, went to the School of Broadcasting here uh, in Vancouver, um, and went directly from that into a legit job doing web design at um, a, a, a nearby university, uh, also here in Vancouver. 
got bored of that in eight months and went on to become a bicycle compost uh, person. And what bicycle composting is, is basically you are um, picking up uh, compost from houses. We did this in Victoria, all around Victoria, a uh, company called Pedal to Pedal. And that's how you first heard of me, Joshua, when you heard my interview on the uh, survival, survival podcast. podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So um, that was a while ago, right? That was at least, what, two, three years? I don't remember I exactly. I think 2011 was okay. the interview, was in 2011. So that was three years ago that I gave that interview. Still running. Everything's going okay. Um, the municipal, The municipality is doing some compost stuff now so we're sort of being edged out in certain areas um even though they are not capable of handling the compost from the city half of it is being landfilled because it's such a mess over there uh part of being on an island is that you um don't really have the space to do that sort of thing landfill or compost and stuff like that so um was it your idea? For, describe the business and describe the business model because I do remember a little bit from your interview on TSP. But describe the business and the business model, and um, who, whose idea was the whose idea was that company? Uh, it wasn't my idea. I got involved, sort of. I guess you could say early on, um, the idea was birthed by a guy named Chris Johnson, who I've hardly met, um, and a couple other people who helped sort of start it up a guy named Matt Schultz, who's still somewhat involved today was there at the beginning. The business model is premised on the idea that, um, people pay for us to pick up their compost in a five gallon bucket. And then we drop them off a clean one on that same day. So we just make the waste disappear and they pay us for the privilege What's really revolutionary about the model is that we are composting it. We're processing it right in people's backyards. So it's composted in the same city block as it's picked up in, and that keeps everything local, and that keeps um, vehicles out of the equation, except for bicycles, basically. So it's a very low-energy system, and necessarily it has to be processed locally. And then it's also used locally. When the compost is finished, we basically donate it. It gets donated to the homeowner in many cases in exchange for the space to process. So there's no rent exchanging hands. And it also gets donated because there's so much of it um, to urban farms in Victoria. Wow. So it ends up growing the food that appears in the farmer's market. So it's, it's quite a, it's a, it's a wonderful circle, low energy circle carbon sequestration um, sort of a system. So it's a really, really brilliant system. I can call it brilliant because I didn't come up with it myself. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I can call it brilliant without being narcissistic. <laughs> well, I, I, I think it's brilliant because, uh, I mean, just how out of the box it is. And maybe, I mean, I've never heard of uh, businesses like that. But, but you know, I did a show recently on, uh, I did a show recently, well, two shows that, kind of where this topic has come up but i did a show on dumpster diving and i read a couple of read a couple of books on dumpster divers and free and like freegans and people who get stuff for free and one of the things that i was impressed with was how 
a lot of these people are just finding a waste stream and then and and figuring out how to make a living on the waste stream. And then I remember talking with uh, I did an interview with Jacob Lund Fisker from Early Retirement Extreme, and we got into talking about permaculture concepts. And the whole you know one of the ideas of permaculture is look for a waste stream and figure out how to repurpose it. And so from a business perspective, I mean it blows my mind that you can say here's a waste stream that people have kitchen. Comp- kitchen gar- kitchen garbage, organic kitchen garbage, and they're willing to pay you to dispose of it, and you can create a business basically with people choosing to pay extra money to give you the materials, and then you go out and and turn that business into uh, you know into a valuable product, and it just seems like a brilliant business idea uh, applied that could be can be replicated in many different aspects of society. And I mean, I'm just amazed that somebody said, hey, I bet this would work. <laughs> do you know anything about the evolution of the, of the company? Was it somebody just to try to do it for free or do you, as far as who came up with the idea? Well, the, the guy who came up with the idea um, asked himself, what can I do for somebody or for people in general that they would pay me five bucks for? Um, and he has all these different ideas and one of them was oh i could pick up their compost you know for five bucks a week Mm -hmm. um and that's the idea they ended up running with um and the startup of the business the business startup costs were five dollars uh that was to rent a voice mailbox actually (laughs) he used a i think a dumpstered bike or a bike he found on the road um and he used a bicycle trailer made of a shopping cart donated temporarily from food not bombs which is a um sort of activist organization that's active in many different cities i believe um and that was sort of the beginning they printed out a bunch of flyers just on quarter sheet you know regular paper um hung it around the city and then they got their first customer and for a long time it was just the one customer and then it was two right and then it was four and Today, it's hundreds, so it just grew slowly, organically, no debt um, ever in our history, um, just a very natural, organically uh, growing sort of business, just people who basically showed up every week, and we just wow. kept showing up, and we had our imitators, but our imitators wouldn't really show up as consistently, so eventually, we were the only ones left really doing bicycle composting in the city, so Is- yeah, that's a... Yeah, I've Basic never been history. to Victoria. Is Victoria like a super eco hippie like um, place? Yeah, it is. Okay. Yeah, it it very much is. Awesome. Um, we were actually the the um, uh, it's called a riding, and it's sort of like your electoral districts. Okay, but our riding was the only one in the entire nation that voted uh, majority Green Party, which um, really sort of shows you the sort of climate of Southern Vancouver Island. Um, is very hippie, very eco. If there was one place this was going to begin, Victoria was it. So you've got you know very strong sort of local agriculture culture, and you have a strong farmers market mentality. And yeah, people people care. People know that they're you know not to throw their food scraps away. That really there's a better way. So yeah, it's a very good place to live. I miss it myself. I don't live there anymore. I wish I did though. But yeah, it's very it's a very eco sort of place, like you say. That's really neat. I mean, I, I can I live in West Palm Beach, Florida. I cannot imagine that type of business <laughs> at all functioning here. 
but you know i've never tried it so who knows maybe maybe there would be enough neighborhoods that somebody could create it but the thing that's just so amazing to me is and maybe this comes easily to you or to other people but it never came easily to me until i started hearing people's stories which is why i wanted to expose the audience to this story is when i've always thought about starting a business i, I came from a formal business school background so you know mm-hmm. you start a business you do a business plan you just you do this, 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 this. You get this. funding, right? From venture capital, exactly. Yep. You get office space. You get all, of, you know, whatever it is that you're doing. You you develop all that great overhead. <laughs> exactly, eight thousand dollars a month of overhead that doesn't even include employees that you have to work your butt off to then pay for. Right, exactly. And then I read stories. I mean, stories like this one, where a five dollars to rent a voicemail box and a, and a bicycle. And you go start a business. And, and people who haven't even graduated university. Right. All, all of these people. Right. And I wonder sometimes if, 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 if we could see more of these stories and if we as individuals could just try more things, if we wouldn't be able to achieve greater freedom for ourselves as business owners rather than persisting in this idea of I've got to work for somebody until I can save enough money to to you know to start my business uh, just go out and try ideas until you find something that sticks and that works I mean there's zero risk to starting a business where you start it for five dollars total there's zero risk to it if it fails big deal do something else <laughs> well I mean I think the reason I think what holds a lot of people back from actualizing this sort of an idea and everybody has ideas you know ideas you have two ideas before you have your morning piss right, right? Um, but I think what holds people back is that they still have to make a living somehow. And in any new business, the largest expense by far is you have to pay yourself some right. kind of a salary. And that's just for your own rent and that's for your own food. So the people who started Pedal to Pedal were somewhat free from that need. We had one guy who um, does lumberjacking in the winter, a very Canadian occupation, as I'm sure you know. <laughs> sure. And then during the rest of the year, he can be on employment insurance, which is sort of like, it's sort of like unemployment. Mm-hmm. And then you have other guys who are uh, essentially homeless, living on a sailboat, which is another thing you can do in Victoria, is live very, very cheaply on a sailboat. Um, so you do have these sort of special cases where where people are finding ways to eliminate their own life expenses, which would hold uh, most people back and does hold most people back. So Pedal to Pedal was was birthed from this sort of um, a freedom, mm-hmm. which you normally don't have, especially if you grow up in the mainstream thinking along the lines of, um, you know, I mean, I live on a thousand dollars a month. That's a quarter of, I think, what a normal um, person would live on in Canada according to stats Canada right. so right there are things there are things holding people back is is the long and winding road to the point well it's i just had lunch you know as we're recording this it's my time it's 2:20 i just had lunch with my wife and we were talking about i was talking about this as far as a sense of the sense of freedom that comes with entrepreneurship and and business ownership as compared to being an employee. And I was just sharing with her how, in, in some ways, you know, I've, I was always an employee before I became a financial planner. And then when I started working as a financial planner, I considered myself self-employed. Uh, I never never received a salary. Uh, everything I, I earned was, was commissions and fees that I built from nothing. 
but I still was working, you know, in within a large company. I still had management and supervision that was over me, and it's yep. not and it's not until I left that uh, about you know a little over a month ago that I've kind of been starting to understand a little bit afresh what the sense of freedom is of not having an employer, and how amazing that feeling is. Just simply to to say I can get up when I want to, I can do what I want to, and and just the sense of empowerment that comes from doing it. And I, I, I believe, I, I'm trying to solve this. And one of the things, one of the problems that I'd like to solve with this show is, a finan- is exactly the problem that you mentioned as far as the overhead that people have. If I didn't, I haven't talked a lot about getting out of debt, but one of the things that I, I think is such an important step on a financial plan is getting out of debt. Because when, we were, when I was thinking about leaving, closing my practice, my practice was perfectly profitable. I was making a very fine living and thinking about starting, uh, starting a new business. And when I sat down and we don't live, any, my wife and I live in a normal you know, three-bedroom, two-bath, you know, relatively middle-class uh, house. I don't know how big this house. I don't know. It's over fifteen, somewhere between fifteen hundred, two thousand square feet, somewhere in that range. I don't remember how big it is, but it's a big house. It's not. We're not living in an RV, although I've I've talked to her about it, but we, we haven't decided <laughs> to do that. We're not living on a sailboat. We're not living in a car. We're not, you know we're not sleeping in a dumpster. Although we've talked. Well, about you're that in, stuff. you're enjoying the best that society has to offer. Right. Right. But but the reality was is because we don't have any debt and because we have a we're we're relatively skillful at spending money. I sat down and I told, and we figured out. And I said, "Look, I could deliver pizzas f- six nights a week, and I could deliver pizzas and, and keep our family afloat. So, mm-hmm. therefore, all of the risk of starting a business is non-existent as long as I'm willing to work two jobs. You know, if I'm willing to build a business in the daytime, which is what I'm doing, and then being willing to work a, a night job. But if we if we were if we had ratcheted our lifestyle up from where it is now, and if we had bought a house right across the street for double the money because it was more impressive, and if we had HOA dues, and if we had car payments, and if we had overhead, there's no chance I'd be able to have made the jump to go and start a business. And I feel like most people, many people, I, I try not to overgeneralize, but many people are stuck in this desperate circle of working a job they don't like because they don't have an option. And if you can lower your overhead, all of a sudden all the options open up and then add your overhead later out of passive income. And just that business startup story to me is so amazing to prove if you can live a good life without a lot of money, then you can start a business and then you can buy your freedom and you don't have to wait until you have $10 million in the bank. Yeah, and then, you know, if you can live like that someday, maybe maybe you can live just like a, a normal middle class or upper middle class adult Right. Um, once you have, like you say, the passive income to support that. But it's, it's, like, you're com- it's like what you don't want to do is compare your beginning to another person's middle. Right. Like people think backwards about uh, the way that maybe they should is they, is they want the car that that represents the wealth and they want the the house that represents the wealth without having the wealth to support that. So, yeah, I think it is, you know, we, most, most people live in slave chains of their own creation, but those are really the best kind of slave chains to have because you can do something about it. And all it really takes is, is the knowledge and the willpower to, to follow through in what you need to do um, to get rid of uh, your, your sort of, bondage right right how do you live on a thousand dollars a month uh well it's funny you mentioned (laughs) rvs i do live in an rv awesome good for you i didn't know that that's awesome 
Yeah. Well, I've I've also lived in a I lived in the sailboat for a little while. Okay. Uh, the RV is wonderful compared to the sailboat. Right. It's it's leagues better. It's leagues more spacious. Um, the RV is parked on my in-laws' land right now. Okay. Although, um, I know that you can. We we pay five hundred a month between us, but I know that you can park in an actual legitimate RV park uh, on the island for under four hundred. So. Wow, um, you you can get rent down that low. I think it's three hundred fifty, probably plus tax a month at this place, and that includes some utilities and doesn't doesn't include others. So yeah, rent is the biggest one. Just like on early retirement extreme, I think that's his day one right. of the money makeover is get your rent figured out. He recommends two hundred and fifty dollars per month per adult, mm-hmm. which is what we're at right now. Um, this is the lowest we've ever paid. We. We're we're basically living in here during a renovation, and then we'll be moving into the new part, one of the new parts of the house, um, once it's finished. So, yeah, yeah. that's a big part of it. <laughs> it it's funny the the two hundred and fifty dollar number. Um, I think when many people read that, they say, "Well, that's not possible," uh, but it's interesting. I think it probably is in just in maybe not everywhere in the world. But depending on where you're at, you, you may, you're going to make some choices, and you can figure out a way to do it. I remember uh, that Jacob, when he would, said that, he was living in an RV in California, and his point was that he would make on his blog is he says, I'm not living in an RV necessarily because I want to live in an RV, but that's how I can do it in California. But now he's living in Chicago, and he's no longer living in an RV. He's living in a house. But the yeah. price differential between houses in California versus houses in Chicago were very different. My wife and I, for the first year we were married... We lived in downtown West Palm Beach, which is not an inexpensive place. We lived in downtown West Palm Beach, and we found a studio apartment right in the middle of the city. Uh, it was a garage apartment behind someone's house, and our rent was 500 bucks a month. And it was awesome because we would walk, you know, we could walk every night. We could walk down to the Intracoastal, walk to the beach. Uh, the beach was the, the, the Intracoastal, the way, if you're not familiar with how it works down here, there's a, a barrier island that's about, you know, three-quarters of a mile wide. That's Palm Beach. And then there's Intracoastal and then there's the beach. So we lived about uh, three quarters, of, uh, maybe about a mile, less than a mile from the intercoastal and less than you know, a mile and a half from the beach. So an easy walk. We could go out at night and walk over to the beach and we're right in the middle of everything. And everything around us is incredibly expensive, but we found the deal to live in a, an apartment for $500 a month. Yeah, that's right. And it was, it was awesome. I mean, we loved it. Uh, we really did. And I think those kinds of opportunities are available in many places. You just have to look for them. And many times we don't look for them. Yep, they are out there. And and it's all about making it a top, top priority. And I think making it a top priority isn't something you can really force yourself to do. It has to be sort of, it has to be toward a goal that's so much more important than everything else in your life. And for me, that goal was time freedom and financial you know financial independence but really what that's about for me is about time freedom you know i i out of a 40 hour work week i get to do whatever i want for 38 of that right i have um so really only two hours of my week are are spoken for you know as a as a work week so for me that there was nothing really more important than that so when it when it gets to that point you really you really learn what it takes to get there and once you're there, it's easy. It's just getting there um, that is the challenge in it. You know, it took me years of, of trying to find something um, where we could live on 250 per adult. It took years to get there. But I think if you make it a priority like that, you can eventually get there. So how do you make your living now? 
Um, it's on the bucket site. It's on Five Gallon Ideas, which was sort of a spinoff um, from Pedal to Pedal. Uh-huh. Uh, because so I this is fivegallonideas.com, right? That's right. Yeah. So uh, pedal to pedal is all built around five gallon buckets. We had a thousand of them, you know, um, company wide, and you just start using them for everything, and then you start taking pictures of everything you're using them for, and then I started <laughs> putting them online, and then I started getting links from Lifehacker and stuff like that, and then it was sort of off to the races at that point. Wow. Um, you know, it's maybe the twelfth site idea I've tried. Uh, And it was the one that happened to work. So I threw enough mud at the wall and something eventually stuck. And that's really, um, that's, that's how it happened. And advertising Uh, off the site or do you sell some sort of like resource or? uh, It's all, it's, it's AdSense, it's Amazon and there's sponsored posts we're doing now as well. So, and, and that's enough for sure. Um, and then there's some other sites as well, which are smaller that I don't really pay attention. Like NDPF, which you mentioned, that's really a site I built for fun. Okay. That's for me. It doesn't actually make any money, um, but it's sort of like how I think is by writing. So, and I'm fascinated in finance, but I don't feel like I have enough unique ideas to start my own um, sort of forum or start my own blog like Money Mustache has or even a podcast. Right. I don't feel like I have enough unique ideas because I pay too much attention to, uh, you know, podcasts like yours sure. or sites like Jacob's. Um, so my thinking is their thinking. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I, I felt I feel the same way. I try to make sure yeah. that I'm always focusing on my original content. But it took me a long time to realize that, no, I actually do have something unique to offer. Uh, you yeah. know, I'm not uh, I'm not the early retirement story. I'm not the Mr. Investment Guru story. But I do know, like, what I know is financial planning. And I do know, like, my mind is always looking for that for the angle. And I know how to integrate the formal side of financial planning over into the the uh, into the blogging world, and I and and kind of how to integrate those two. And so that's the message that I'm trying to get out is is to kind of integrate those two. And I and and it took me a while though to build up the confidence to say no, I do have something to say, and uh, <laughs> we'll see if it works. So far, I'm enjoying it, and and I think it's funny that you say, you know, it doesn't really matter. It's just kind of your ideas. I I. I've thought about next in a couple of weeks. I think it's next month. Actually, I'm going to uh, to FinCon, which is a, a financial mm-hmm. bloggers conference out in New Orleans. And as I think about the financial world and the financial blogging world, I've thought like, why do we need so many financial bloggers? And then I realized as I was considering it that in reality, I wish everybody would write a financial blog. Not that everyone is going to make money off of their financial blog. I think people who are who are trying to a very tiny, you know. Point zero zero something percent of, of blogs are going to make a, a financial blogs are going to make money because you can't just say fifty times over put money in a Roth IRA and expect that to be a compelling content. But for the purpose of a journal and for the purpose of tracking what you're doing, what each of us is doing by writing things down, I think anybody can coach themselves through all of their financial situations and the process of doing research, the process of clarifying their thinking on paper can be so valuable that in reality, I think all of us should have our own individual personal finance blog, whether it's public or not, to track what we're doing and what's working over time. So my hat's off to you for that. Oh, well, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, I agree. Like, I think, um, I think that was the original intention of a blog was just basically a, I mean, a public or not sort of journal, right? So that we don't have to buy notebooks all the time. And it just happened to be that some topics were 
um, worthy of advertisements. So that's sort of how you got the blogging culture of today where people, I think more and more people are equating blogging with making money blogging, right. which is not, does not necessarily have to be the case. I go to a blogging conference every year, um, almost every year, uh, Northern Voice, and they don't even allow um, you to submit normally a um, speech abstract that talks about making money blogging or making a business out of blogging because it's about the storytelling aspects of blogging and that's what they've decided to focus on. So mm -hmm. there's a lot more to it than just making money with it. Right. Right. Um, I've got a question and, and I've got a few topics that I'd like to, to talk to you about, but I'm interested. What was it that, why did, like after you worked with a web programming company, it sounded like, and then you moved to pedal to pedal. Why did you not want to go and get another job? Why was why was that important to you? Was it an idea that you came up with one day, all of a sudden, or was it something that grew on you? Why did you not just go get a better paying job? Well, jobs were something I looked at in Victoria, but I also explored every single other option I could. Um, <laughs> Victoria has a great culture of free piles, and one of the things I did was I'd go through free piles and try to resell the stuff I found in free piles on Craigslist or at the consignment store, right? Um, blogging was another thing. I was already making a little bit of money from blogging, so I did a little bit of that as well. Um, I did apply for some jobs that I was interested in. I didn't apply for jobs I wasn't interested in. I think I only applied for two or three. I didn't get them, uh, so uh, I ended up doing pedal to pedal. Um, it was always a a um, sort of leaning for me to go into entrepreneurialism. I think I started my first business when I was five. I sold all my mom's um, costume jewelry wow. out in our uh, courtyard. And after that, you know, I had, I had a pumpkin stand. I had lemonade stands. I resold bagels. Um, I just tried everything that worked. It was just a natural inclination for me from a very, very young age. So I was very fortunate to move to a city uh, like Victoria where self-employment is so common, so normal. The, um, the employment market actually is very terrible in Victoria. It's very difficult to land a job. So it was sort of just the right climate for me to finally get into something really legitimate. And that was this struggling company, Pedal to Pedal, that wasn't even invoicing its clients, that wasn't doing its financial tracking that really didn't have any good systems in place. And it offered me the opportunity to sort of do that and, and get do some real entrepreneurialism of a real company with a couple hundred clients. Um, and after that, it was just like I, could, I just couldn't ever go back. Like I'd rather live on the streets than really go back to a job. And I had a good job at UBC uh, when I was doing web design. It was a great job. It paid really well. But, you know, I come home exhausted and I was always a little bit tired and I just come home and play video games all night because that's really all I had the mental energy to do um, so yeah it was sort of a happy accident that I just moved to the right city that was able to nurture the what was already there what was already a natural entrepreneurial and entrepreneurial inclination for me and the reason I'm asking I'm trying to figure out what it is that causes people to make that jump and I, and I don't know because as I mentioned I, mean, I just spent an hour with my wife talking about it over lunch that it seems to me that once you get out of the cave to use the Plato's allegory of the cave sure it seems to me like for me I, I've told her like I'm not going back I mean I can see myself accepting a job 
with somebody doing something if there were a chance to learn something. If I had a chance to, uh, to, to do something really neat and something really cool that I was really interested in learning, I could see myself accepting a job uh, doing something like that. But I would rather... Something that advances your own agenda. Right, right. But I would rather... <laughs> I'd rather have a hot dog cart out in front of the courthouse and <laughs> do that every day and uh, and not make enough not even make enough money to save then go back and and go into the corporate world I, I, I would rather make less money even and I think I could make lots of money as an entrepreneur it's not to me I don't see it as one or the other I don't see it as you're destined for poverty if you pursue entrepreneurialism and you're destined for wealth if you take great jobs I see it the other way around is that if you're the kind of person if you're the kind of person that's going to do well in your job then you're the kind of person who could probably do way better as an entrepreneur. Uh, but I, I don't understand what it is that, in my own mind and in my own path, that made that 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 transition. And I've not understood how to help people, other people, clients, understand that and and build the confidence to make that jump. Uh, it's a it's a subject I'm interested in researching and trying to figure out what those 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 triggers are. So if you've got any light on that, share it with me. But uh... yeah, I think part of it is it's it's the story of my brother and I is an interesting one because I think part of it is that intrinsic motivation, that willpower to kick your own ass and not have somebody else kicking it for you. Mm -hmm. My brother and I are both very similar in many many ways. Um, we're creative in our own ways. We're um, intelligent, I suppose. Um, but I have the ability to kick my own butt and he does not. So he does very well at his job. Uh, he's a very valuable member of his team. But when he's working for himself or even working for me, he doesn't produce. He doesn't ship like he would because he gives himself a break all the time. Right? But does he so care? Does he care? Because you're – I find myself getting up earlier every morning, staying up later, working on my show and my other and my other projects because I care. And I'm working a lot harder now for myself than I did in the past because I didn't care. So is it that is it that he lacks some kind of internal intrinsic character quality or is it that he hasn't found the subject that he that he cares about enough to do something about yet? Well, I don't know. Um you say you you use the word care, um, but but that can mean a lot of different things. I think like what are do you care about the subject itself? Do you care about where that's going to take you eventually? Do you have you tasted the freedom? You have you tasted the fruit, and you just crave it again, like tasting the freedom? Um, I don't know. It's a it's an interesting question. I think. I think it can vary a lot individual by individual. Mm -hmm. um, from what I've seen from my own life, the, the ability to get up early and, like you say, work late on your own stuff, I think that's rare. Um, and I think it's probably, I don't, I don't want to get into conspiracies, but I think it could have been something that has been trained out of us through the schooling system, that ability to... Um, to really be intrinsically motivated and even even to care about um, to care about what you're doing, I guess. Right. Right. I don't know. 
I'm interested in trying to figure it out. And uh, and you mentioned the school system. I, I to this day I cannot figure out if uh, and I can't figure out was it conspiracy or was it not? Was it was it happenstance of how our educational system has evolved or was it designed to be uh, to have those results? And I I don't know the answer. Uh, I find compelling arguments on either side. And and yeah. I, at this point I at this point I've just kind of thrown up my hand and said well. It doesn't really matter why or where it came from. Let's just go with what is, yeah. and and let's let's get rid of what is and replace it with something better. Uh, yeah, and deal with it on its own terms. And and I know people who loved their school years, and those are the people who make great employees, I think. And I know people like myself who um, just couldn't wait for summer to roll around and would be happy if every day was a week end, right? So you have different you have different people with different inclinations, I think. And the people least satisfied with the the sort of system, the way things are presented are the ones who are most likely to, I think, succeed doing their own thing. And you see this with people like Steve Jobs, who was so dissatisfied with Western culture that he went on an uh, an Eastern mysticism pilgrimage mm-hmm. Um he went so far as to do that, and I don't know many people who would go so far as to do that. But that's what he did because he was so dissatisfied. And he came back, and he basically stayed true to his own um, sort of beliefs until the end of his life. And people like even Bill Gates, who um, dropped out of school and just did his own thing. Right. It, it's an interesting theme that that, that I look at, and and... I wonder, I was listening, I've been trying to figure out what some of the tools and the keys would be to help people make the career shift. And I've got a lot of ideas on the financial planning side. I've been able to, to, to coach some clients through making that shift and from the, from the financial planning side. But as far as from the emotional side, I've wondered about it. So somebody recommended that uh, Dan Miller's uh, a man named Dan Miller who wrote a book called 48 Days to the Work You Love. So I went over and I started listening to his podcast and I had read his book a few years ago, but I hadn't really, it didn't really click with me. I didn't find it to be that useful. But I went over and just started listening to his podcast and I started listening to him as as far as how he was coaching people through. And he had this question from one of his listeners and one of the questions was, I don't have, and the, and the listener told him, he said, I don't have any passions. And he said, well, what happens is a lot of times we, we get our passions beat out of us. And I thought about that with regard to school is that I think that that may be, may be a big impact. I, I, can't, I can't imagine somebody not having something they're interested in, but I can't imagine us suppressing the things that we're interested in by being forced to study all the things that we don't really care about. And by somebody saying, <clears throat> excuse me by somebody saying this matters and you know it doesn't matter you know i've never used calculus but yeah someone says no you got to learn calculus and we know that there are people who are illiterate have complete that they're they, they have zero literacy they have zero numeracy and yet they're still able to make make life go and so yep. but yet the whole like the schooling system says no you're supposed to care about this you're supposed to learn these basics of geology and many people just force themselves to do it and uh not to get all psychoanalytical. I mean, to get all psychoanalytical, <laughs> I wonder if that doesn't have a big impact. But uh, if you have any more thoughts on that, let me know. Otherwise, we'll move on to something else. But any any more thoughts on that before I go on? Well, yeah, the passion one. I mean, I never knew that I had any passion for anything, you know, when I was growing up. Um, because I think passion is something that's a result of life experience. You're not born with a passion for, for example, 
um, impressionistic art. It's something that develops uh, through your life, through your experiences, and through basically what you do. You know, you may... I, it, my life has been a study in one thing leading to another, and passion has come from the one thing leading to another and experiencing many different things and trying out many different things. I've had, I've had all kinds of different jobs. Um, so I think asking a 17-year-old what their passion is is the wrong question because they haven't had the life experience to necessarily have one. They don't have to have one. They might. Right. They might have a passion for drama. You know, you, of all, it's, a, it's a sort of a myopic um, curriculum that you have in high school. So maybe only 10% of the people going through high school are going to find something that really riles them up. So if, if, somebody, if it takes somebody until their 30s to find their passion, I think that that's perfectly reasonable. Right, right. I have one other thought on that, and it's interesting. I think one of the reasons I think it's so valuable just to chat about things like this and to listen to podcasts, to listen to shows like mine, listen to shows like uh, to read blogs, to re- listen to other shows, and is that I think a lot of this is mental, and it's not financial. I was reading last night. Um, there's a there's an author. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but there's an author. His name is Ernie Zylinski, and he's written various books. Uh, two of my favorites, of which are a book called the one is called The Joy of Not Working, and the other is called How to Retire Wild, Happy, and Free. And I was I'd I want to get him on the show, so I was. I was looking at his website last night to to send him an email, and I was <laughs> I was looking at his bio, and it says it said on his bio it said that and I'm loosely paraphrasing I don't have it in front of me but it said Ernie Ernie wanted, Ernie retired at the age of 31 with a negative with a net worth of minus thirty one thousand dollars <laughs> to prove that you don't need money to retire. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think you do. No. And he went on. He went on to say. He went on to say that uh, that since that time he has refused to work more than four to five hours a day, and at this point in time he enjoys an income higher than eighty percent of the general population. Uh, and he's done it his way for the last 30 years and i was just so struck by that as and and from because of the fact that i had read his i had read his book in the past uh let me read this uh, here we go i'm going to read this to you because i wanted to get it right so i just pulled it up so i'll read two paragraphs Ernie is an innovative ex-corporate worker who was blessed to have been fired from his job as a professional engineer over 20 years ago and to have leveraged his many years of struggles without a real job into a lifestyle of personal and financial freedom that is the envy of the corporate world. Uh, Ernie deeply believes... Okay. Ernie's core message that ordinary people can attain out-of-the-ordinary results and make a difference in this world is at the heart of his work. Ernie deeply believes in the powers of creativity and well-intentioned action as the most important elements for personal prosperity and financial freedom. To prove this, Ernie semi-retired when he was 31 years old and had a net worth of minus $30,000. As a result of his creative efforts, working only four or five hours a day, however, Ernie today is financially well-off and makes a better income than 85% of full-time corporate workers. (laughs) And what struck me about that, and then uh, with some of the the things I've been reading as far as like dumpster divers and hobos and vagabonds and and even just guys like you, and you said, I, I you know I didn't have a lot of uh, I didn't have a lot of money when I when I quit, is that it, it's almost nothing to do with the finance and it's everything to do with the creativity, and 
if you have if you if you're willing to look at creative solutions like getting people to pay you and I know it wasn't your idea but I just think it's a good example of a creative solution getting people to pay you to ride your bicycle over to their house and pick up their compost that they could easily compost in their own backyard yeah <laughs> I mean there's no reason why you can't just toss your your vegetable scraps you don't even have to turn the pile you just toss them there and let them rot <laughs> but they're willing to pay you you know a few bucks a week to drive by and pick up their bucket because it helps them to feel good and yeah, it's that creative <laughs> go ahead it's that creativity that matters and 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 so it's almost like I feel like my life is wasted as a financial planner because what I need to teach is creativity because if I teach enough creativity, people can figure it out and the, then the financial stuff doesn't matter. <laughs> so, yep. And I think a really interesting catalyst, uh, your author guy, what, Skigzinski? Zylinski, Ernie Zylinski, Z-E-L-I-N-S-K-I, sorry. I think, I think an interesting um, aspect of Ernie's life is that he – he was almost forced in a way because he retired with so much debt, you know, 30000 Probably right. when he retired, you know, that was a lot more money. Um, he had sort of the fire in his belly, like it's succeed or die, right? right. It's not like you, he's a trust fund guy with no job and he's thinking of starting a business. He's somebody in a tight spot. And I think, I mean, it's the, it's the old adage. What is it? Um desperation breeds ingenuity or something similar to that right uh, where your mind is is constantly struggling you know it's an it's an anxiety uh response it's not comfortable mm-hmm. to be in that $31,000 of debt and it's not comfortable to struggle with ideas that will get you out of that but it is effective right and i i sort of went through the same thing you know i graduated with 10,000 in student loans and not 10,000 in savings. Mm-hmm. So I had a negative net worth when I stopped working and um I'm and so so I had to, you know, do something to make the rent. So I had to sort of hustle in a way. Um and it was really only through that that I managed to to make it. If I had just been a trust fund kid, we probably wouldn't be talking today. I wouldn't have really done anything sure. worth worthy of note um if I didn't have to at the sure. time. Sure. You're right, and I've seen this with people. You sometimes see it if you when, well, you see it with salespeople because sales. I mean, there've been I've read lots of studies on salespeople when when I mean we have the quota, you got the end of the year. Salespeople are so much more productive when their numbers are coming up and they got to get something done. And you think, why wouldn't they just apply that same thing the whole year and not do it all in December? Uh, Or I've seen this. I've seen this when people, maybe you have a, a, a child that all of a sudden you have a child that has special needs. And then, you know, dad or mom, they turn their career on overtime and they triple their income because they've got to be able to pay for the treatment that their, that their child with special needs has. And when something yeah. becomes a must-do or you, they get a, a health condition and they've got to cut back but they've got to stay productive, when something becomes a must-do, then all of a sudden it's, it's like we summon extra creative ability, we summon extra... Uh, extra, I don't know what the word is, gumption, motivation, and we, and we get it done. And I wonder if there is a way where you can intentionally um, cultivate that in yourself. It's a little bit risky, but it's, I've heard it referred to as burning the ships. Right. So if you're an immigrant, you know, in the early, in the 1700s in America, and you come over on ships with a bunch of your countrymen, um, 
those ships, you know, those planks are useful for other things. You can you can build houses with them or you can burn them for firewood. But it's also a huge risk because at that point, there's no going back. Right. Right. So it's sort of if, if you can intentionally burn your ships to force that creativity out of yourself, I think as an effective strategy, it's also a risky strategy. Right. And if you do it for yourself, I mean, I've had people, this is one of the things why automatic savings plans are so, are so effective. If you, if you establish an automatic savings plan, if you have a regular income and you establish an automatic savings plan where the money doesn't hit your checking account, you're forcing yourself to save the money. And I've implemented that in my life and I've seen it work wonders for people. When, when things are forced, uh, this is one of the, the adages of why some people say you should buy a house because it forces you to make that mortgage payment uh, or yeah. why you know there are certain investments where you're forced to make a, a monthly payment and you don't have a choice about it versus oh, I should save some money uh, so <laughs> it, it's a, it's something that Which we can works. right right it's something we can employ I think to 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 move us towards our goals it's a useful technique yeah. I've got two other quick things on my list and then if there's anything that you would like to to share but one I was going to ask you uh, you are a little bit involved with something called spin farming, right? Yeah, that's right. Spin farming is a farming method that I know about, yes, and that we, we, we exercise in Victoria on a small scale. So share that with the audience because I'm, I'm familiar just through what I've read online and what I've listened to with different people. And uh, the, I guess the, the leader seems to be a guy named Curtis Stone, and I'm, he's on my list of people to interview for the show. But give us an introduction to what is spin farming and, and, and why, why people should care. Well, Curtis Stone is a guy in Kelowna. He's not the leader, but he is the um, most well-known spin farmer, and he's the most vocal okay. spin farmer. He actually has a history in concert promotion, which has enabled him to um, really be good at getting the word out. So he's almost like there. He's not he's not the deity, but he is the prophet. He's the evangelist. That's right. So what spin farming is, is it's basically um, you can you can look at it uh, as successful for many of the reasons that pedal to pedal is successful in that it's urban. um, It's small scale. It's cheap to start up. And um, it's profitable. So what spin farming is, is you're basically farming on backyards. And since one backyard is not enough, you use your neighbor's backyards with their permission, of course, hopefully, or you use backyards from people nearby within, um, you know, driving distance if you choose to have a car, but Curtis Stone runs his spin farm all on bicycle. So imagine you've got donated backyards, you've got easy commuting distance, You've got no vehicles in some cases, so you've got very little overhead. So unlike traditional farms, um, you've, you save a lot more of the profit for yourself. And what that means is you're actually able to um, make money doing it, uh, and you're often able to do it without taking on any debt. One of the biggest problems with uh, corporate farms, or I shouldn't say corporate farms, but traditional family farms is that they lose money every year Mm -hmm. because they um, take out huge loans at the beginning of the year. They spend huge amounts of money on um, equipment. You have to own your land and oftentimes they, you know, are either paying large taxes on uh, overvalued land or they're paying large lease. They're paying large leases for leased land. So 
they may make $100,000 a year and they may spend $90,000 a year or they may spend $113,000 a year. So really they're making no money. It's sort of a it's a lifestyle business and they're farming. They're doing what's called farming the brown envelope, which is um, tax rebates. Mm-hmm. So spin farming is sort of this elegant alternative um, where you're using very specific inputs to have very uh, high productivity. It's labor intensive, uh, but it's human labor only. So you have high productivity for high value crops that can be sold locally and fresh. So it's, it's the, the most popular crops to grow are something like garlic, which you can sell for $15 a pound. Something like salad greens, which you can sell for unbelievable, unbelievably high prices per pound to restaurants. Or you'll sell microgreens or you'll, you're, you'll sell um, – basically you're selling stuff that isn't really a commodity crop. Like there's not really people spin farming potatoes or onions or these cheap carbohydrate staples. Um, and it's, it's a standardized bed. It's a standardized irrigation system. Everything's been standardized by the spin farming people uh, so that you can make very good um, estimates of what you can earn on any given land base. So it's this, it's this elegant system. You buy the startup manuals. I think the most you'll ever spend is $100 if you buy all the manuals. Um, and then you're sort of into this, you know, you have the marketing, you have the financials, you have all this infrastructure. It's almost like buying a um, franchise because somebody's done all the business planning for you. And that's why it's such a successful system is because it takes a lot of the guesswork out. And it's urban-based, um, so you can do it right in your own, right in the city where people are buying your food. When I first heard about it, I this exactly the same way of the with the idea of 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 pedal to pedal, where I where I thought, wow, <laughs> how is it possible that you can make a business doing something like that? I thought the yeah. same thing with spin farming, and yeah. it just blew my mind the creativity of the solution of and all of all of one side of my family extended family is involved in agriculture out in the western US states out in uh, Nebraska and Wyoming and Colorado and yep. my grandfather uh, I, my both of my grandfathers one of my grandfathers was a farmer his entire life until he died and my other grandfather was a, a farmer and a rancher for some of his life and then he got out of it uh, because it was just unprofitable and so I've been around it for 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 a while and I was thinking to myself when I heard about spin farming, and so I compare my family's experiences with ex- all of the things you just said. So normally, if you w- if you had an interest in agriculture and you want to go into agriculture, you can you, you need to go, you need to buy or lease land, you need to buy tractors. All this is very expensive. It's very intensive. There's a certain economy of scale that you have to hit you to to be profitable. And your profitability, if you're growing commodity crops uh, in the mainstream in the mainstream commodity crops, your profitability is is influenced 100 percent by your tax rebating, by your tax uh, system. That's right. Farming the envelope. Right. Now, if you flip that to spin farming, it, what spin farming was is, is, is that instead of buying land, you're going to get, you're going you're gonna to borrow land. Either in exchange, you may pay for it, 
or you or you may pay for it, or you may do some sort of sharing arrangement. Instead yeah. of going out to the country where land is expensive, you stay in the city and you and you borrow people's backyards that they're not really using anyway. You have exactly. because of the <laughs> fact that you're in you're there, you have the ability uh, you have the ability to. I mean, you have all the infrastructure. You don't have to go and buy a hundred thousand dollar pivot sprinkler sprinkler system. You just put a garden hose up to somebody's back back wall and pay them for their water bill uh, for the increase in their water bill. You're and right. Purified water, beautiful right. water. <laughs> right. You're right in the middle of all of your customers. And so when I saw the picture, I think it was Curtis Stone who I saw the picture of. Here he is riding his bicycle around the city with his, you know, with a tiller on, on a trailer. So you don't even have to buy a big pickup truck. You don't have to go and buy a $40,000 pickup truck. And and when I saw the numbers as far as when you take out all of those expenses, and yes, it is a labor and it is it is it seems to me to be definitely a labor intensive uh, business. So you would have to be okay with wanting to do the labor intensive business of it. But it seems like it can be as profitable as I've done some financial planning for some farmers and some some ranchers and some you know in citrus and in various crops here in Florida. And some of them are incredibly profitable. Many of them are just barely profitable, and yet the amount of overhead and risk they have is huge. Whereas in this in this world, you have no overhead and no risk. <laughs> and I, I was just struck by the fact if I could if you know if there was somebody locally here in my where I live that was interested in spin farming, I've actually gotten together with a group of people and we've talked about it to see if we can do it. But none of us seem to have the the ability to do it uh, at this point. But if there were somebody locally, I would let someone live in my house and I would let them farm my backyard. Just I got a big backyard just so I could have the crops from it or, or my sure. share of the crops from it. And I sure. thought, what a creative way to skip the money and look at things alternatively and build a business uh, in a creative way where there's no risk and no overhead by rethinking all of the assumptions. I think it's awesome. Well, I- and, and, and again, like to bring it back to earlier in the discussion, uh, you're using a waste right. stream. Right. Because yards are often waste. They're wasted space. They totally. waste water. They're, they're wasteful in so many ways. It's very rare that a yard is fully utilized. Um, so you're using this waste stream. You're turning it productive. And then that productivity is then paying dividends, as it were. Right. When I look, and this is why, I mean, I am a, an eternal bull when it comes to economy, uh, to economic goings on. Not that there's not, uh, there there are always going to be times of of difficulty. But when you look around and you look at the amount of waste in our society and you see people doing things like transforming backyards into farms and you think that, you know, not that I don't think everyone needs to do it or should do it, but the fact that it's possible, and in my block of, let's say, there's 20 houses on my block, if somebody farmed six of them, you can add, you could add that would be enough land for them to feed all 20 of us plus, you know, plus profit with other people. And there you just created an entire livelihood for somebody in doing something that's incredibly valuable. And it hasn't in the past, the, the, the need hasn't been there, so our society has adjusted. But there's people doing it now, and so I mean, these are options that are are so creative and can be these ideas can be applied to any industry. If we rethink how we do things, we can. I mean, we could, there's so there's so many possibilities that we could pursue if we just rethink how we do things. Yeah, it's. I think waste creates. You know, waste. It's it's a bad thing and everything, but it does create a lot of slack in the system. Like right. You even even I just had a thought about 
all the wasted sunlight that falls on parking lots, right? right? That's that's a resource and that's a waste of that resource. You know, sun falling on a forest isn't wasted, but sun falling on a parking lot is. So can we design parking garages with solar panels or some other kind of uh, you know, garden, some other kind of thing on the roof. So right. it's just one of many, 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 many ways we waste in society um, because we're so removed from sort of natural systems and we're sort of removed from consequences from wasting energy because of, you know, f- fossil fuels, which we primarily run our society on. We can afford to waste now, but like you say, it's the future. You can be optimistic about the future just because we, we can figure that out. We can right. figure out how to use all that waste um, and end up profiting even in a society where a gallon of gas costs $40. Right, right. We really can. I, I saw an idea. It's funny you mentioned parking lots. Maybe you've seen this. I think it was, it was probably Canada. It seems like, it seems like out in Vancouver uh, yep. you have this culture that seems to support this type of thing, the local culture you talked about from, uh, from the island. But it, it, uh, I saw where somebody had built a whole farm uh, in container farms, and they were they had built these large containers that you moved with a forklift, but their entire farm was on a uh, a, a an urban space underneath a, a an overpass of a, of a highway. And is that Saul Foods? Maybe, is, and then they can move the entire thing. You put the whole farm on semi trucks and truck it away, and. It was there was all these big containers that they were growing all of these far these these vegetables right in the middle right on a parking lot because they were using containerized gardens, and they were just renting the land for cheap and their entire operation was mobile where if they needed to move it they could just simply uh, rent some some semi trucks and get a forklift and put all of these big containers up on the semi trucks and in a weekend they could move their farm to an entirely new location and they were making a they had a farm in the middle of the city with this idea. Uh, I don't remember what the name of the the company was, but I was really impressed with it. Yeah, that's pretty remarkable. And then, you know, the landowner can't try and screw you because you're not really tied to the land. You're you're in a bunch of, you know, mobile bins and the sun's everywhere. The sun's free. So, right. um, Right. Yeah, that's pretty that's pretty remarkable idea. I get excited talking about this stuff. Last subject that I had that I wanted to ask you about, because it's a subject I'm not I'm not an expert in. If you're willing to talk about it, you play around or have played around with some of the cryptocurrencies, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> How yeah, did you get into that? Um, well, I got into it because my brother and I talked about it a bit. And, you know, everybody sees the reports, oh, Bitcoin is, um, you know, it's $1,000 today and yesterday it was 30 Right. So it's sort of like this get rich quick idea that catches on into the news Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a it's a, a very attractive narrative for viewers. So it's um, you know just like lottery winners are a very attractive narrative for. So I, I had known about it from that, and you know I had been following Bitcoin since quite early on with casual interest. Um, and then I saw a lot of people talking about this new cryptocurrency, Dogecoin, which was popular around Christmas. Um, and what it is basically cryptocurrency is you're solving puzzles and each solved puzzle is a coin and you can exchange this coin. You can exchange it for money. You can exchange it for goods and services. Um, what's, what's actually the brilliance behind Bitcoin is, um, how it's a distributed 
model rather than a centralized model like PayPal or banks. Mm -hmm. So the brilliance behind the algorithm is that every computer with a wallet or every smartphone with a wallet holds the entire transaction history of the coin. So that method allows uh, a bunch of people with this transaction history to confirm with each other that transactions are um, legitimate. And this solves the double spending problem that normally has been solved by centralization of uh, financial power. Mm -hmm. uh, Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, these, these guys all solve the double spending problem. You know, you can't spend a digital currency twice. Uh, Bitcoin was brilliant because it solves it by decentralizing rather than centralizing. Okay, so that's why Bitcoin exists, basically. Um, but it's also distributed in the way where anybody can print the money. And you solve the problem of overprinting by um, making it based on processor power instead of based on, say, mining for gold, which is how you solve the overspending problem, overprinting problem with that currency, or a central bank, which will solve the overspending or the overprinting problem with paper currency. This kind of currency solves the overprinting problem by having it based on processor power. So you run your processor or you run your graphics card really, really, really fast. You can't like watch YouTube while you're doing this because you're running your graphics card so fast. And what you're doing then is you're solving these puzzles which are printing your coins. So I got into it because I've got a graphics card, you know, just like almost everybody with a computer has a graphics card. Uh, and you can run the graphics card during the night and it will literally print money for you at a small rate. So I got into it because it's a it's passive income, which is very interesting to me. B, it uses hardware I already have. And C, it's a brilliant distributed system that, you know, I think it's worth supporting. And I think it's it's uh, worth caring about. But you're not printing. Uh, you're not uh, you're not mining Bitcoin. You're mining Dogecoin. Yeah, I'm mining Dogecoin because Bitcoin, I mean, then this gets into sort of the more nitty gritty politics of it. But Bitcoin is an older hash system that can be um, exploited and it has been. So basically to play in the Bitcoin game at all, you have to buy cards from this certain one company, uh, ASIC. So it's sort of um, this hardware manufacturer has almost cornered the market on printing these Bitcoins on this brilliant idea. So what they're doing is they're re-centralizing the power in a way. So it's all sort of uh, cryptocurrency politics. It's, it's interesting if you care about it. It's not if you don't. Um, but basically, Bitcoin, to mine Bitcoin, you have to buy this expensive equipment, which is really good for nothing else but mining Bitcoin. So the great thing about mining Dogecoin when it was, when you were able to mine Dogecoin profitably is that it was based on a new algorithm that requires um, graphics cards, which is, again, redistributing the power to mine currency to users everywhere, not just to these large hardware manufacturing companies. So that's why I mined that. And then I would just trade that for Bitcoin okay. in a multi-pool. So I have both. I have Doge and I have Bitcoin. So, But is this still uh, profitable? Like, are you still doing it? Or is, it, is that, nope. that, that ship has sailed? It's the same company again, uh, the company that um, ha creates the hardware. So 
if you buy $100 of hardware for, from them, it will perform better than $1,000 of hardware from um, just graphics cards. So oh. you have to, I mean, yeah, you have to buy the $100 hardware um, from this one company. And again, it's not good for anything else. You can't, um, you know, play games with it. You can't really resell it because uh, it's, you know, outdated in six months. So it sort of takes the power away from the people in a way. So that's happened to Dogecoin. Now there's a new hash for coins like Vertcoin, where now, oh, you can now mine Vertcoin, and, you know, that's good. But I haven't really bothered yet. Yeah, we'll I, haven't see what heard, I haven't even heard of that one. Yeah, so that's, a, that's the new one that can be mined with graphics cards and hasn't been figured out by... This, these big companies like Butterfly Labs that, that manufacture the hardware. So, I don't know, it's fascinating, but when you dig really deep into anything, it's fascinating. Right. So. I'm so interested in Bitcoin, and, and it took me a while to figure it out, but once I, I think I have a better understanding of it now than I, never did, than I ever did, and it is, I'm not gonna, I won't go into it now, but it is so exciting, the possibilities that it opens up, that the possibilities that have never existed based upon how monetary systems presently work. And, you know, I don't, I wonder if, I don't know if Bitcoin will be the, uh, will ultimately be the solution that wor that works for the long term. I, you know, I kind of doubt it because it's hard to imagine the, the first major one, you know, sticking around. But just as far as the underlying ideas of the cryptocurrency is is awesome and then i love the fact i mean I, you see so much growth as far as the people that are accepting bitcoin and the and the growth in the merchants and and the ability to use it and i mean i, I get excited about it just because it it solves a lot of problems that people don't really know exist until you start thinking about it and digging into it. I got to—I don't know who. Uh, I got to find somebody to bring on the show to really talk through it, and because and, I'm—I'm not expert enough to talk it through with the audience. But I'd like to find someone to bring on the show to talk about the just the philosophy behind it and the the, the barriers that it opens up, that it that it destroys, that that are current that are currently exist because of the way our monetary systems and systems of exchange currently function. So. Um, I think it's exciting. I love seeing people do it. I've never, I've never gotten into the mining thing. It seems like, uh, it seems like you got to be on the the, uh, the the leading edge to to make that profitable. Uh, and I wish Bitcoin would just be completely stable and be done with this whole growth phase, <laughs> and just be stable. But we'll see if it we'll see if it happens. Well, it's in its infancy, so you know, a hundred years from now, if Bitcoin's still around, I'm 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 sure it will be more stable then. Right. Right. It's hard to believe it will be around in 100 years, but uh, but who knows? You never know. Yeah, who knows? Anything else that you want to cover, Trevor, or as far as any other topics that, that, that you think would be interesting for the audience? Well, I just wanted to mention that I found it very interesting that everything we discussed today was basically about decentralized systems, um, distributed solutions, which is um, very against the norm to be thinking about things in sort of giving everybody the power. Another really interesting decentralization is sort of Airbnb, which right. um, is, you know, anybody can be a hotel, right? And, you know, we all have computers. Anybody can be a graphic artist. Anybody can build a website. Anybody can be a blogger. It's just, you know, for all the extra um, uh, fascism and totalitarianism that we hear about a lot, we've never really had more power as individuals in a way because things are you you have this amazing in technology primarily you have this amazing um 
distributive qualities. Um, so same thing with the internet. I, I think it's just really encouraging that, that at least some things in our world are getting better. Right. Right. I mean, you, the, that's one of my themes and, and I had to figure, I have to figure out how to express it because I think sometimes people don't, don't get it, but in a world that it, it's this weird paradox that you just said is yep. that it seems like, at least from my knowledge of history, there has almost never been a time of greater tyranny, greater restriction, and less freedom on a macro scale. And yet for an individual, it seems like in history, I cannot think of a time that was ever better that has ever been better to live than right now, where there's more opportunities for personal freedom and there are fewer restrictions and fewer chains and fewer bondages, few, less bondage. And the chains all seem to be mental. It seems to be that exactly like we talked about of the switch from going from employee to entrepreneur, it, it seems like it's 100% psychological and mental and 0% actual reality. And it's why I, it's why I, I, I go sometimes, and, and it's, I, I wonder if people understand, but I look at it. It's fine. I make all these jokes about, you know, go on food stamps, go on unemployment, th- these kinds of things. And my point is that we live, in, a, so we live in, a, in an increasingly, and I guess you're in Canada and I'm in the U.S., we have a different, but they're similar in many ways. We live in an increasingly subsidized socialist state. And if I could remove most of those things, I personally would. Uh, overnight, that gets into a whole conference, but that gets into a whole discussion between what's practical versus philosophically, you know, aimed to shoot at. But for an individual, it's like, how do you possibly fail in life by going for your dreams? You can't go hungry. You can't f- be without a place to live. You can't, like, there's, never, there's no personal danger. There's no personal danger to life and limb. So even if you go entirely bankrupt and, you, and, and, you're, and you're making the switch and you can't figure out how to do it profitably, like, you still can't fail. It's still all this mental construct. Uh, and so, I mean, all of these things that we're talking about, the government, I mean, in, the, in a world where politicians are being dramatically affected, their policies by the, the connection of information with the social networks, with Facebook, with Twitter, you see it happening all over the world. You see it happening in the U.S. I assume it's happening in Canada, although I'm certainly not current on your news. Uh, I mean, political power is changing, and it is only possible because we've solved the direct person-to-person communication. And when you realize the ability to have these decentralized systems, I mean, I, <laughs> I don't know how to put it in words that people get, but I just, I think it's exciting. It's an exciting time we live in. Yeah, there's no more interesting time to live in for, for good or bad, really. Right. There's, there's never, well, I'm sure they've always been saying that, but for right. me, certainly, it's, it's such a fascinating time to be an observer. And the thing, and the thing is, you. Here's my other point with finance. You said you're living on a thousand dollars a month. You are living a better quality of life on a thousand dollars a month than uh, Rockefeller. Anybody. Than Rockefeller <laughs> lived. What was that? Yeah. Eighty, a hundred years 80 ago. Years ago, yeah. With his, yeah. with his billions, and you yeah. are living a better quality of life. Entertainment is free. I mean, it is. It is free. And so at $1,000 a month, your lifestyle and your quality of life is better than the richest person in the world 50 years ago, even 35 years ago. Now, do you live in a palace? No. But who cares about that? 
uh, I, I mean, that's all, that's all ego. That's all trying to show off what you can do. You can only be in one yep. place. And you can be in one place with a $50 phone, and you can have the entertainment of the whole world that has never been better and never been more free. So this, this idea that I somehow – that's why I like this – I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish my rant. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> like it, it's all about ego. And so the things that people are sacrificing their life energy for, which I think is a brilliant term. And the, I, I, I want to give credit. I guess it was Joe Dominguez and Vicky Robbins who wrote uh, Your Money or Your Life. That was where I first read it. Maybe they stole it from somewhere. But the things that people are spending their life energy for are all these status symbols – and they, you are spending your life energy, which you never get back, for ego, for, for status, for things that don't really – I mean, maybe they matter to you, and if they matter to you, I'm not going to say they don't matter. I think that when you gain perspective, they probably don't matter. And the fact is is that you can spend the world – you can spend your life energy accumulating amazing experiences, and you can do it with, with no money with almost no money but you have to see through it it's like i mean it's it's like the matrix you've got to see the matrix and see how it works in order to figure out how to get out of it so (laughs) i love that you pointed that out i'll give you the last word well it's like it's like i said um it's it's um it's never been a better time to be a slave because you can actually do something about it right right that's a fitting place to leave. Trevor, where, uh, what would you like, what resources or websites or what would you like to plug? Where would you like people to find you? Uh, plug, plug anything you want to plug. Yeah, well, the main site is 5gallonideas.com. That's a site about buckets. There's a lot of homesteading stuff on there. Uh, more, a lot of the prepping stuff is very popular on there, like disaster preparedness. Um, I've got a startup manual for the compost business. We'd like to see a lot of these growing up we've already seen a bunch of them start up especially in australia that's super cool uh, that's, that's something you're selling as like a, a how-to manual yeah it's a it's so similar to the spin farming i okay i took the idea directly from them sell this startup manual so people can do their own it's sort of like a like a almost free franchising basically awesome, awesome. so for it's it's nine dollars it's available on uh five gallon ideas.com as well um that's to help you start up your own compost uh project if you want to in your city if you think your city will be um receptive to that and uh that's really the the main stuff for me it's pedal to pedal.com if you want to read about that company that's pedal as in a bike to pedal as in a flower.com so those are really the main sites that are oh and ndpf.com which has sort of my weird ideas anytime i think i have a unique thought about finance, which is rare, I put it there. <laughs> so, um, yeah, those are really, I guess, the three sites, and you'll probably be put those in the uh, in the uh, uh, show, show description, whatever mm-hmm. it's called. Um, so, yeah, we won't bog down with too many sites. Those are really the the three main ones to our discussion today. Awesome. I'll make sure I have those in the in the okay. notes. And by the way, thanks for the plug on NDPF. Uh, it was cool to see my name above uh, Dave Ramsey's name, as far as uh, oh well. I mean, <laughs> that's my <laughs> well, favorite he's thing so to see. Stream and you know mostly uninteresting, <laughs> but I put him there because 
his ideas about getting out of debt are for some reason strange. So yeah, I, I have a love hate relationship with Dave Ramsey. I think he is <laughs> awesome as far as yeah. some of the work that he's done. And the, and the love hate relationship is because he's the he's the top dog and he's the he's the he's the big guy. And that and what happens yeah. anytime you become the top dog, then you you're easy to you're easy to criticize. Easy prey. Yep. He is easy. amazing. Yeah at motivating people to get out of debt. And I yeah. don't understand how he, um, how he is so effective at it. Uh, and I, my, I mean, I have the, a world of respect for him and I try to figure out like, how does he do it? And he is awful on certain financial planning topics. And one of these days I'm gonna, when I decide to, to build my audience of haters, I'm gonna do a show and <laughs> try to destroy some of the advice he gives. But Yeah, if you if you criticize him enough, he'll demand that you come on his show. I've seen that happen before. Really? <laughs> uh, yeah, I've seen it happen before with just uh, small-time sort of Forbes writers. He's had them on the show. He's tried to huh. rip them to shreds. Yeah, it's very popular in, in, oh, yeah. in like, right-wing radio, which right. he is. Right. Uh, right-wing radio. But right. yeah, he's doing... He's doing more for the average person. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the average American family than maybe anybody in finance today. So you have to have respect for that. Oh, I, I have, he, and, and he was the reason why I got out of debt when I was in college is 100% oh, based go. upon uh, my total money makeover. When I read my total money makeover, I just said, what am I being an idiot here with student loans? <laughs> like I am just being an idiot, and I and yeah, I he punches you in the face with his yeah, exactly, words. exactly, and that's what makes him so effective. Yeah. But on the other hand, one of these days I'm going to write a, uh, I, I will, you know, not because I want to. That's the problem is I don't want to come across as someone who is I don't I'm not on an agenda against a person. Like I think he's awesome. I've been, I, I used to teach his uh, financial peace university class. Like oh, I yeah. used to I used to buy uh, cartons of his books. And I would give them away to uh, I would give them away to clients. I would carry literally. I'd buy them uh, ten in his cartons of ten for a hundred bucks, ten bucks a book, and I would give them away to clients that were in debt because I would tell them I can't walk through this with you. Like I can't spend enough time, but follow this plan. But then over time, I just had to put more and more disclaimers, and I'd say, but you need to ignore this, you need to ignore this, you mm. need to ignore this, and then I, I worked with so many people that told me I'm doing the Dave Ramsey plan. But what they meant by doing the Dave Ramsey plan was, well, I sort of kind of want to get out of debt. And then I realized, I was like, it sounds really good, but I don't see enough results from it. And, uh, and then when you get into some specific financial planning recommendations, I mean, when I have a client tell me I, I, I'm going to retire with, you know, I'm going to retire and I'm going to draw 8%, I'm going to draw 12% return from my portfolio and I'm going to have eight, and then there's a 4% inflation rate. So therefore my income is going to be 8% of my portfolio. And I would sit there and, and just like look at them with my mouth ajar and say, like, do you really believe that? And people really do. And, mm. <laughs> and it's, 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 <laughs> it's, so he, his safe withdrawal rate, quote 8%, unquote, is 8%. 8%. Uh, which is double right. uh, the percentage of um, what you know somebody like you, a financial right. planner, would. And I wouldn't so, even know, 4% use four percent is still on the high end, right? Really, and I wouldn't people. even use a four percent number for most people yeah. because yeah. the four percent number has certain uh, assumptions in there. It doesn't assume fees. It doesn't assume uh, investment expenses. Most people have fees and investment expenses, whether they should or not. It's up to you. But like, and it doesn't assume, and it assumes. Yeah, there's lots of assumptions on it, and and yeah. so <laughs> it's just it's just crazy. Uh, like when you get into that situation, it's crazy. But the, and here and that was 
one of the biggest influence, and I haven't even said this on the show, but one of the biggest influences that I said on the show, or one of my reasons for starting this podcast, is I said somebody needs to create a podcast to help people have the content that they need. Because what happens is that financial planning becomes a cult of personality. I do what Dave Ramsey says. I do what Susie Orman says. I do what insert your favorite blogger says. And it becomes a cult of personality. And the average consumer doesn't have the level of sophistication to identify here's what's going on, here's what's good, here's what's bad, here I see how I can take that and use it in my life. And, you, and so my hope is to say, I don't want to build a cult of personality. I'm going to try to teach you how to think. And I'll point out you know, why I think the way I do. But don't be drawn to me because of me, my personality. Don't do anything because I say this is what you should do. Let me teach you how to analyze stuff. And let me teach you think, to think like a financial planner. So then you can take all of the good from a guy like Dave. And you can leave the stuff that isn't going to work for you. Yeah, you can, you can sort of internalize it and make your own decisions based on... I guess, your own personal situation. Right. And this is how politics should work. Like, and this is where it's like, I'm not a Republican and I'm not a Democrat. I agree. I have, I have, I do a lot better with some of my friends who are communists than I do with some of my friends who are Republicans. And, but I used to be a Republican, but it took a long time before I realized, wait a second, this is all a bunch of lies. Like, this is not me. I don't, I may agree with this and I may agree with that, but, but I don't agree with this and this, and I'm not just going to, you know, toe the party line. And so I see it as this cancer in our society where we say, I'm a, whatever your parties are up there, I'm a Green Party or I'm a, I don't even know what your, your political parties. And, and the reality is we need to look and we need to evaluate things not on the basis of what party, but on the basis of individual ideas. And there will still be parties, but we need about eight more of them, um, with not two of them. Or, or how, I don't, how many major political parties do you guys have in Canada? Uh, we have more. Right. Um, we have one major conservative one and many, many liberal ones. And our conservative one is called the liberals. It's very confusing. Canadian politics are very odd. But I'd say we have four major parties, maybe maybe five major parties and three or four that are likely to win major elections. So, awesome. okay. yeah, we definitely have more in Canada. Um, there's not sort of the same false duopoly like you have mm -hmm. in the United States. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough. And, and what's funny is that you say names. Like I am a, I, I am probably <laughs> it, the biggest, the most mainstream num like name that I would probably personally identify with would be a classical liberal. I, like I'm a liberal, but I'm not a liberal in the sense that it's understood in 2014. I'm a classical liberal, which yeah. is a libertarian, which is so off on the. <laughs> On the fringe. Well, these <laughs> these words have been so poisoned. Destroyed. Even exactly. Libertarian is such a poisoned word. It is. Um, I think, I think if you call yourself an independent, um, maybe that one hasn't been branded as maybe. much, because it basically just means, um, you know, screw you. I'm you know independent. Independent can mean really anything, but you know, can you really herd cats and form a political party around independence? I doubt it. Yeah. So yeah, I guess if we need mass action, there's got to be some kind of brand. I don't know. I think I, I've been watching a lot of, um, man, what's his name? Um, he's a British guy, but he's saying, yeah, we just need more and more governments. Like I, I want, you know, independence for Scotland. I want independence for everyone. I want independence for every single neighborhood and let everybody sort of figure it out. We need more, you know, not less. And that was really the original idea behind the United States was you have uh, states Mm -hmm. as the supreme sort of entity. Right now, that's not what we have at all. States have to do what the federal government 
says or they withhold highway funds. Right. Um, so the original idea behind the United States was absolutely brilliant as you you give states their sovereignty. And then, you know, if you don't like the rules in Florida, well, move. you you can move and you don't even need, you know, a visa to move to Louisiana and go check out Louisiana. And then you've got sort of this built-in evolutionary process. It's the same process you have in biological evolution where each state has to step up because, oh, we're losing people, you know, or we're, you know, losing influence. So really we have to, um, so it's a, it's a pressure toward what the people want rather than a pressure away from what the people want, which is what we have now with centralized federal power. Right. So. Right. I say more of everything, more parties, more states, right. more, more, more power to, you know, neighborhoods, you know, let us let a neighborhood decide its um, uh, building code instead of letting the province decide its building code, you know. Right. And that's where, I mean, work like you're doing, work like I'm doing, I hope, I hope it has an impact. Because when you recognize the fact that you can build an, an amazing, A, you can live in an RV and be very comfortable and, very, and have it be very posh, and you can do yep. it for a lot cheaper. <laughs> or you can build an amazing house that's incredibly eco-friendly, that's incredibly energy efficient, that's perfect to your climate for you know $20,000 instead of $200,000. And the only thing standing in your way is the building codes. Yep. Then people will compete and and that competition it matters i mean look at detroit yeah, detroit destroyed itself and then people people just get up and leave well then when people get up and leave the whole tax base goes away and then finally you declare bankruptcy you start over and it's a city i mean I haven't i'd like to go there and visit and just see what's going on right now but it seems like it's a city that has more challenges but is experiencing more incredible renewal well, it's a renaissance. Yeah. Detroit is in a, in a sort of in a renaissance phase right now, and that's happened because of the sort of creative destruction. Right, right. That's exciting. Well, Trevor, thanks so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate you being with us. Oh, well, thank you, Joshua. I hope your listeners, you know, enjoyed my experience. <laughs> I, th I think they will. I'm sure they will. I think this kind of content is valuable. All right. And that's our show for the day. I appreciate Trevor. Thank you for being here with us. And I appreciate, uh, I appreciate your listening. Hopefully some of the concepts and ideas that we discussed today were, were interesting and, and inspiring and, and thought-provoking. Let me know how you like this kind of show. I personally really enjoy these, a show like today of just having a conversation with somebody because I think there's a creative synergy in a, in a, in a conversation like this that... Uh, is a creative synergy that allows you to, to learn something from a different perspective. And hopefully, some, it's funny, I mean, as Trevor said at the end, it's funny how many of the, the solutions to problems seem to be similar in so many ways, whether that's distribution and localized presence, and, and they seem to be similar. So hopefully you found it thought-provoking. My goal here is to bring you something thought-provoking, educational, entertaining, to bring those things together so that every single day, you feel a little bit smarter. Uh, appreciate your listening today. If you're interested for the show notes uh, for today's show, this is show number 37. You'll find all the show notes at radicalpersonalfinance.com slash 37. I will link to all of Trevor's sites. And if you have questions, comments, feedback, feel free to comment on the blog. Shoot me an email, joshua at radicalpersonalfinance.com. Reach out on Twitter at radicalpf. I uh, would love it. would be thrilled if you'd leave a review for the show. That's so helpful. We're sitting right now in the... I think last time I checked, we're in like the number two or number three spot in the new and noteworthy section for the investing uh, investing section on iTunes, and that wouldn't be possible 
if it weren't for all of your reviews, and I would be thrilled to make it into the general business section. I don't even, I don't know if that's possible, but it would be possible with your reviews. So please, if you enjoy the show or if you hate the show, come by uh, the uh, iTunes link and just leave a review. If you're listening on a mobile device, uh, especially one that's that you're using the uh, the podcast app on Apple, you can do it right on your phone. Just pull up the show in the sh- in the uh, pull up the show in the iTunes store and rate it and leave a review. Put a comment. I read every one of those and I appreciate every one of them. Thanks for listening. Figure out how you can break the mental chains that you're facing, because all of us face them, and go out and set yourself free. Have a great uh, Thursday, everybody. Done.